Okay, good morning, everybody. We are going to continue our study on modern revivals, a chapter in Great Controversy, Modern Revivals. We'll do the part two of that study. Before we begin, let us pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here once again. Yesterday, you blessed us greatly. We had this study on modern revivals and it was indeed very clear to us what we are supposed to be experiencing at this time. We knew you were with us. We implore you, Lord, to please come and join us once again. Speak to us from your word and help us, Lord, at the end of the study. By your grace, we will be experiencing that transformation of character, that revival of the spiritual life that we want to experience, that we are supposed to have before the coming of Christ. Do this for us and take the glory. In Jesus' name I've prayed. Amen. Amen. Okay, yesterday we stopped in the seventh question. We learned a lot. Bro, God bless, I wish you were here. This is your topic. We were talking about the false revivals and how you go to program. Somebody talked about when they went to Mountain of Fire and uh, they wanted to push her down. <laughs> when I heard that, I remembered you. I said, I wish you were here. Another person said, I think it was Sam, I talked about how you go for these high experiences and when you come back, you feel like you're on top of the world. Not because you have renounced your sin, but because they have made you feel high. You feel good about yourself. In fact, you feel confident in your sin after that because you didn't get any transformation of character. You just felt good. You sang songs and all that. Whenever there's a revival, there's a soul-testing truth that requires self-denial and renunciation of the world, which, of course, comes with the preaching of the law of God. But I just wanted to mention the soul-testing soul-testing truth, and then that will require self-denial. That's one other thing I remember we said. All right. Bro, bro God bless mentioned something. Can you, I don't know. Just give it to him. Let him repeat it again about the experience of you get in that false revival. Okay. You know, we have been in, uh, myself now, you know, in, in the church setting where, you know, where we are made to believe that uh, because you have come here for the program now, you are going to live here to become, you know, a rich person. You know, that is the point. So when you leave that place now, you go with the idea that, not because you are really overcoming sin or whatever the case, but you are going to go out and then become the next billionaire, you know. So you are really pumped up for you know, for life, and you are really all happy, but not that you are really becoming more Christ-like, you know, so you use God to just achieve your worldly, you know, ends. That is just the whole point of the whole, uh, you know, deliverance session. Yes, everybody who comes there, they come either because uh, witchcraft, you know, and then my business, but nobody comes, I, I want deliverance from this particular sin. No, 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 no. It's always about something here and now. All right. Once you leave that place, now you are good to go. You are going to, to, to go and conquer, you know, to become the next whoever in the world. <laughs> okay. And like I said earlier, we saw one thing that was prominent in a true revival is that the law of God will be given its rightful position. There will be a faithful preaching of the word of God. It is that, that is what brings about the true revival. There will be visible changes in the life of those who are experiencing that true revival. You will see a change in things like the dress, in the diet, the conduct and attitude. We will see a change in ambition. We will see a change in even the speech, how they speak. 
Those are the things that attend the true revival and the faithful preaching of the word of God. And one thing we saw in the false revival is that there's a lot of excitement. The means that are used are things like church fairs, bazaars, concerts, picnics, theatrical performances, which we call drama, people acting drama in churches, just to entertain the people and excite them. And nothing, one thing that will lack is the word of God will lack. The law of God will not be preached. The word of God will not be preached faithfully. People will not be told their sins and they will not be urged to repent from it. That's the characteristics of a false revival. And we saw that whenever a true revival, if the word of God is preached properly, we will get that true revival. And the reason why the false revivals lack power, it's like we saw, the word of God is not given its rightful position. I'll just take that that uh, paragraph, the Great Controversy, page 465, paragraph 1. It says, in the truths of his word, God has given to many revelation of himself, and to all who accept them, they are a shield against the deceptions of Satan. It is a neglect of these truths that has opened the door to the evils which are now becoming so widespread in the religious world. The nature and the importance of the law of God have been, too, have been to a great extent lost sight of. A wrong conception of the character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of the divine law has led to errors in relation to conversion and sanctification and has resulted in the lowering of the standard in lowering the standard of piety in the church. Here is to be found the secret of the lack of the spirit and power of God in the revivals of our time. So from here we'll continue with our next question, it will be question eight, and we'll hopefully finish this chapter and the study. Now question eight says discuss the relevance of the law of God and its relation to the character of God. You can see page the whole of page four hundred and sixty six and then also page four sixty eight paragraph two. So let's discuss now what is the relevance of the law of God in our lives and in a, in a revival? And what is his relation to the character of God? The whole of page 466 can tell us something about that and also 468 paragraph 2. Okay, 468 paragraph 2. I'll read what we have there. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalms 19 verse 7. Without the law, men have no just conception of the purity and holiness of God or of their own guilt and uncleanness. So if you want to bring about a revival where people are supposed to turn away from their sins, without the law, can they see their guilt or their uncleanness? Can they understand the holiness of God? No, it is the law that points out the holiness of God it is the Lord that points out our guilt. It is the Lord that tells us where we are unclean. I will continue the paragraph. It says, They have no true conviction of sin and feel no need of repentance. So you see why the false revivals, people come back not feeling like there is anything to repent from. It's because the law has not been preached. So they will see no need of repentance. Not seeing their lost condition as violators of God's law, they do not realize their need of the atoning blood of Christ. That's why they can cover their car with the blood of Jesus, cover the house with the blood of Jesus, cover their business with the blood of Jesus, because that's what they were told about in the revival. 
how their business is going to boom and how they become, like you said, the next president and the next big person and the next happening thing in the world. So, and then mixed with it is the name of Jesus. And so, because Jesus is mixed with these ambitions, so the, 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 the death of Jesus is no longer for sin and his blood is no longer shed for that purpose. But the blood is now, it's not atoning for sin, but what? It's covering the, their properties. They, they use the blood of Jesus to cover their property, their houses, their children, their, their, their children from, from uh, accidents and from people stopping their progress in life, not covering them from their sins and covering them from witchcraft and all this kind of stuff. But the blood of Jesus, what was it shed for? For sin, for remission of sin. But when the false revivals are done and brought people, has brought people to a high, they go home and even in the program, looking for the blood of Jesus, not for sin, but for their selfish ends. And that's why it says here, they don't realize their need of the atoning blood of Christ. The hope of salvation is accepted without a radical change of heart or reformation of life. Thus, superficial conversions abound, and multitudes are joined to the church who have never been united to Christ. This is the condition, this is one of the conditions, this is what happens when people do not put the law of God in its rightful place. Now, the relation between the law of God and the character of God, you, you can see there. It says that the law of God is perfect, and that without the law, men have no just conception of the purity and holiness of God. So, the connection between the law and God is that it is the law that explains to us the purity and holiness of God. And it is still the law that convicts us of our sin, tells us where we are going wrong and where we need to repent. Anyone has something to say on that? Anyone? Okay. The, the paragraph, one of them, I think in this page, four, six. Seven, paragraph one here. He said the law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. So God's law is God's character. So as God cannot change, the law cannot change. And if we're going to have righteousness, it will be because we are actually becoming more like God. So I think that's a, uh, the relation between the law and then you know, God's nature. All right, Barisoma. that says the claim that Christ by his death abolished his father's law is without foundation. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or set aside, then Christ need not have died to save man from the penalty of sin. The death of Christ so far from abolishing the law proves that it is immutable. So it gives us a clear picture how God values the law. And like it says, if it was possible that the law or the character of God should have been abolished, then why did Christ now come to die? He will have just removed the law, and then the whole uh, experience of his death will have been stayed. So if the character of God cannot be changed, the law of God cannot be changed, and it is immutable. Okay. Any other person? Jason, you wanted to say something. All right. Give Jason. Read paragraph 467. Sorry, page 467, paragraph 1. The law of God from its very nature is unchangeable. It's a revelation of the will and character of its author. God is love and his law is love. It's the great principles. So its, its two great principles are love to God and love to man. Love is the feeling of the law. 
The character of God is righteous and truth, righteousness and truth. Such is the nature of his law, says the psalmist. The law is truth, and Jesus Christ is truth. All thy commandments are righteousness, and Jesus Christ, we are clothed with his own righteousness. Now, in Romans 7, verse 12, we talked about the law being holy. The commandments are holy, just, and good. Now, Jesus Christ said, be holy as I am holy. In Psalms 19, he says that the law is perfect. Christ, Christ says, be perfect as I am perfect. In other words, it's just correlating. There's only one standard of perfection. So, the law and God's character should very, very much be synonymous. See, the law and God's character are to be synonymous. All right, bro, Barnabas. Paragraph 466. Sorry, page 466, paragraph 1. Many religious teachers have said that Christ by his death abolished the law and men are henceforth free from its requirements. And I think one verse that is used to you know, support this claim or let's say propagate this claim is Romans 10, verse 4, which says that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So for many, this means that Christ has come and then by his death he has abolished the law. So there is no need for us to keep the law. We just love and love and all. But then that's not what the rest is saying because if we should follow the principle of comparing scripture with scripture, if we check um, in James 5 verse 11, If you are there, you can read it for me. 11 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have read of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. We have seen the end of the Lord. So, saying, if we take it literally, literally, that means Job, that means the end of the Lord has come. Meaning the Lord ceases to exist, if the end means cessation. So, the Lord ceases to exist, and we know that that's not possible, because God is eternal. And, if we compare it, we will see that end there, Christ being the end of the Lord there, end there represents outcome or a kind of culmination. And then it reminds me of what we discussed um, yesterday, that those who actually will be sealed will obey the requirements of God fully. They will grow in the full stature of Christ. So it is a process. And if you check the word, if you check the word outcome, it actually means... Um, it's that which is produced or caused as a result of an event or process. So it's a process. As we faithfully obey God's word, we, we are changed. Into, as we behold Christ, we are changing to the same, into his glory from time to time. Glory to glory. All right, Christ being the end of the Lord. The word end means purpose. When you say something is a means to an end. Hmm? Uh, if I say money is a means to an end. What does the end there mean? It's just the means for me to achieve my purpose, my end. When, Christ, when we say Christ is the end of the law, that is, the law is a means to an end. And what is our end? Christ. The law leads us to Christ. That's what it says when it says Christ is the end of the law. It didn't say Christ brought the law to an end. I think the English, if anybody wants to be sincere, is clear. It doesn't say Christ, Christ brought the law to an end. Because he himself said in Matthew 5, verse 17, 
Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy, but to do what? Fulfill. And then he magnified the law and said, If anyone, but to heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle in the law will do what? Pass away. Therefore, anybody who teaches that anybody should break the least of the commandment, he will be called least in the kingdom of God. And anybody who teaches the law himself and also keeps it, he says he will be called great great in the kingdom of God. So Jesus made himself very clear. He didn't come to destroy the law. The law is not abolished. If not, there would have been no need for his death. Is it not so? If the law is abolished, then why is he dying? Why are we asking for forgiveness of sins? I think the whole world should be in trouble because they are still incarcerating people for breaking the law. Killing is not a sin. Eh? And all these other things people are going to prison for. We need to stop doing that because Christ has brought an end to the law. It doesn't, it's not consistent even with our character. <laughs> even our character is inconsistent with it. You, 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 you might. Right, thank you very much. Okay, so let me just do a review of what we have, what we have seen so far. Let's do, let me just do a review. We've seen from question eight that the relevance of the law of God is that it points to us our sins, and we've also seen its relation to the character of God is that it is the law that explains to us the holiness of God. The law is a, an explanation, a transcript of the character of God. Therefore. If we are coming into reconciliation with God, we must come into harmony with the law of God. In question 9, what is the work of sanctification? The work of sanctification is to reconcile us back to God by bringing us into harmony with the principles of his law. That's great controversy, page 467, I think paragraph 2. It says that the work of sanctification is to bring us into harmony with God by bringing us into accord with the principles of his law. That's the work of sanctification. We are seeing that the law is connected with our sanctification. And what role does the law and the death of Jesus play in accomplishing the work of sanctification? We see that in page 467, paragraph 4, it says, The law reveals to man his sins, but it provides no remedy. While it promises life to the obedient, it declares that death is the portion of the transgressor. So we see there that the law tells us about our sins, but since we have broken it, we cannot get the life that is in the law. That is why that passage says that Christ is the end of the law. So when the law shows us our sins, it tells us that we do not have life. So we have to go and look for life from somewhere. And where else can we have life? Except in Christ. So it is the law that makes us see our need. If the law was not there, we will not know that we need Christ. Because Christ died for what? Our sins. Since the law points to us our sin, we need someone to tell us to, to, to take our place. Because the Bible tells us, Romans 3.23, that the wages of sin is death. And like we said before in James 2.10, that whosoever will transgress just one of the law has done what? Transgressed all of them. So we have need. We have need. We can't get that life that's in the law. We need a savior. And that's where the next statement comes in. The gospel of Christ alone can free us from the condemnation of the defilement of sin. 
He must, we must exercise repentance towards God, whose law has been transgressed, and faith in Christ, his atoning sacrifice. Thus, we obtain remission of sins that are past and become a partaker of the divine nature. We become child, children of God, having received the spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. So that's what we have seen so far. Now we have entered into question 10. What are the characteristics of a new birth? The characteristics of a new birth is the characteristics of the results of a true revival. A new birth means that we are going to live a life in harmony with the law of God. Page 467, paragraph, you know, 468, paragraph 1 says, In the new birth, the heart is brought into harmony with God as it is brought into accord with his law. So the new birth, do you want to know whether you're experiencing the new birth? Check if you are living in harmony with what? The law of God. Because that's the only way you become in harmony with God himself. And then are we experiencing it? I've just, I gave a bit of my own experience how there were many changes made in my life. The music, the movies, the likes, the dislikes. I just check the law of God and I see, okay, this thing is not pleasing to God. When I see, okay, this is not pleasing to God, I have to now change my mindset to like what God likes and hate what he hates. And that is what it means to say you are experiencing the new birth. Of course, it takes some time, sometimes it may take time for you to change your, your, your desires. But at least you can, first of all, begin to avoid. It's not so. You may not necessarily hate, but you may begin to avoid the things you know that are bad. Sometimes you hate many things, but there might be one or two lingering things that you still like that you are just doing what? avoiding and that's why sanctification is not a work of a day it's not the work of a year but the work of a lifetime it takes time to transform a person from what he was before to what christ is into holiness so does anybody want to share are you experiencing it sanctification have you experienced it what's your experience okay somebody raise their hand who is that okay bro philip The more you study, the more you get new light. In fact, you can read a sentence today in the Bible, and then the next day you read it, you find out that there's something there you actually needed to um, live with. Okay, so the more you, st- I, I also saw a, a place where the White talked something about that. That the reason why we do more study is not because we've uh, uh, we want to be um, act like we know everything in the Bible or that, but because we want to want the word of God to reach every aspect of our life and touch every part of our lives which needs correction. Yeah. So I'm still experiencing it. All right, any other person? All right, bro, Sam Bikisu. Um, my own experience, every time I think about it, is still amazing to me. Um, growing up in the village, having my father as a hunter, my mother as a fisherwoman, um, in the area of diet now, because that was the, or this this is the recent one that is just happening to me, after coming to know about the Sabbath, I thank God so much that, <clears throat> in fact, where everything is happening, as I come to learn about um, the health reform, and all that it entails, even now still continually learning some other aspect and still reforming. I thank God so much of how he has been helping my mind to simply 
eat all of these things and then how that I even take away. All of which things? The um, food that the Lord gave in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29, which is the original diet. <clears throat> because I did not grow up knowing all of that. So I really am appreciating God for the changes in my own life in that um, area of health and um, diet, actually. So that's one experience that you had with respect to a change in diet. Okay, uh, any other person? Okay, Sister Ngozi. Well, I thank the Lord for the messages and the transformation. I knew or when I learned about the ills of bad music, not that I used to like hip-hop, I wasn't liking hip-hop, but the blues and country music. And my mind was telling me that it is immoral, you know. And I was really finding it difficult giving it up. But I knew that if it's not praising God, then it, is, it should be on the other side. But I still found it very difficult to stop. And God just helped me because somebody came and took away the memory card that I usually used to play it. So I thank God because he's helping us. Helping me. How, how did you realize that those things were wrong? The music? Well, I knew that anything that is not, there are just two sides in the okay. world. It's either something is on God's side or it's on the enemy's side. So as I listen to it, I know it is definitely not praising mm. God. So, Did someone faithfully preach the word of God to you? About it? Yes. No. Okay. You studied from your Bible? Uh, I listened to some messages. Okay. Uh-huh. I listened to some messages. I just knew that there were just two sides mm. of the divide. Is either something is on the good side? Or on the other side. All right. Thank you very much. Bro Godson, you want to share with us too? Okay. We have two more hands. So. Okay. There are so many I would say, but let me just say the later one. You see, the mind that is easily offended or embittered, let me put it that way, when your path is crossed, let's say the person who did whatever he did was wrong in all analysis. You are right, the person is wrong. Yet the person has not seen what is wrong and what he or she has done. But in your mind, Satan is cooking up, building castles of bitterness. One of the lessons God has taught me and has helped me is to forgive. And forgive completely. With the basis of the basis is Christ forgave you. You have done so much evil to him, but he still forgave you. So what has someone else done for you now that you will not do what? Forgive. Since you know yourself, you know your past, it's not like somebody is trying to convince you that you are a sinner. This one is that you know you are what? A sinner. And Jesus paid all the price. He even forgave you before you realized that you were a sinner. So why is it that you don't want to share that forgiveness with somebody? who? It's, for me, I don't know what else could have liberated my mind. It, it gave me the freedom I needed. Just let it go. And from what we have read recently in the Spirit of Prophecy, there could be reasons why people do what they do. We have different educational backgrounds. That's different. Some of us don't see some things as wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not wrong, but just excuse them. 
be understand. That's how Jesus lived with us. He knew that Father forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And Stephen will say, lay this sin, lay not this sin to their what, to their charge. So um, it's helping me to deal with different kinds of people. I don't have to bear grudges or uh, you are not doing it. Just allow people be free. It's one of the best things that God is teaching me this time around. Sorry, now, how did you get to realize these things? Okay, I would say, we, told, we are told that the, the law is the character of Christ. Yes. I could see that I was more from Christ's own perspective. Christ was not easily offended. I was, we were doing this devotion on our high calling, an upward look. I think two of them were revealing to us that the character of Christ. Christ is not offended with what people were doing to him. He maintained his peace. And then I compare my own character with his own. I found that the way I'm behaving is not the way Christ is behaving. Otherwise, he just will be in the mountain, not relate with anybody. So me, sure, obviously, something is wrong with my mind if I'm easily being offended by what people are doing. Mm. Whereas Jesus is with the Pharisees, he's with all these kind of people who are calling him names mm. and not even apologizing one bit. Mm. Yet he's calm and... I said, there's something wrong in me. And the, the devotion also helped me. That's why I made the first uh, contribution about not being embarrassed. Mm. God is not revealing the thing to you so that you just say, oh, no, this is how my life is so useless. He's trying to show you something that is wrong, that he wants to help you. So obviously with these things, it has helped me to face my problems square. I'm not facing it with a, a emotional disturbance. Let me know my problem. I know God wants to help me. I'm not now looking at it like uh, you know, uh, being embarrassed or my reputation, that, those kind of things. No. So like the question you asked, it was by reading the devotional, comparing my own character with Christ, I realized that I'm not in unison. I'm not at peace with people as much as Christ right. is. And that devotional is a faithful preaching of the word of God. Yes. All right, let's hear from Sister Sandra. My personal experience I have two experiences I'll talk about. One was my appearance, firstly. It was just like, a, like I was talking to Bani yesterday, it was like a ministry of the Holy Spirit. One day, when I had to, when I dropped trousers, it was one day I was going out, and I wore my trousers to go out to church, the church I was attending then, to work. So I gave up having this thing within me that was telling me you are doing something wrong. I was feeling ashamed for my room, but I just kept on going. So I... I went for the program and returned. Even when I was returned, I was feeling ashamed of myself. But later on, some, an event happened. Someone talked to me about it. And I found, okay, okay, this is better. Let me use this opportunity to draw the trousers. Then when it came to jewelries and um, hair and everything, I just kept on having that leading within me to draw this. The day I dropped my jewelries, nobody preached to me. I didn't even read anywhere. I was listening to Doug Bachelor's messages on hellfire, different things and that Sabbath and the rest. So just one day, I just woke up, I picked all my jewels I bought recently, I just threw them to a dustbin, and that was it. So the other experience I had was with impatience because I grew up in a, a very tense environment. Everybody shouts. So and I noticed, I'm not there yet though, but I noticed that God kept on putting me in the midst of children. And I knew he was putting me in the midst of children for a reason, to learn patience. So. Like I teach, so my children in school, I'm also fretful most times with them. And I go back to God like, hey, most I want to be discouraged. Like, are you sure I will really attain this <laughs> level? And the day I gained victory, I was like, okay, thank you, Lord. Today I was more patient with these children and the rest. So the Lord has, that uh, newness of life helped me to drop many things and realize my sinfulness, the areas of my weaknesses. It's also helping me to be patient with other people. 
Because when I know that every, almost every day I'm being faithful with these children, I go back to God, the Lord still gives me another opportunity. So it helps me to be more patient with other people that are trying, even not trying at all. Because that's, that's just right, my Thank you very much. Uh, thank God for these changes that are taking place in our lives. Okay. Robanabas, let's hear from Robanabas. Um, for me, it was music. I used to be a lover of music. I loved all kinds of music, the secular and the sacred. And even back there at home, it was even a regular blend of the two kinds of music. And even in church, the church I went, Seventh-day Adventist church I attend in Lagos, it was the regular thing. And mostly after um, ceremonies, when we go out um, to the field, same compound, what we listen to is mostly worldly music. So. I didn't have this conviction that this I was listening to was not giving glory to God. And I thank God that by the grace of God, in the revival, that, um, revival program actually that happened in Futu last year, September, there was a faithful preaching of the word of God. And I had this strong conviction. But before then, before, before that time, I was already having some kind of... Um, I was pricked in my conscience, even before then, that I needed to change these kinds of music, but I was so attached to it. And many times, I would have, I would, after I had so much struggle, I wouldn't even ask why. And I was, not, I was not even really interested in studying the Bible. And then I just took sermons and talks casually. It was not something I paid so much attention to. But I thank God that God really worked on me um, during the program. And this, that night when it was really talked about extensively, I just received power and immediately I got back home, I deleted all of these songs I had in my phone. It was so, after I did it, I did not imagine that I had done this. It was so wonderful. It was a wonderful experience for me. Thank God. There's something you said now that I, I don't know if it's something that everybody experiences. Before the faithful preaching of the word of God, sometimes you know that these things are wrong. Sorry? Yes, the Holy Spirit still ministers in the heart. But you see that for some, that may be enough. But the preaching of the Word of God is like a surgery that is done, not, not, even if it was clear before. Eh? But that day when that thing is faithfully preached, it does a surgery on the heart that gives the person who is listening power to do what they could not do before. That's why we say there is power in this word. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the word of God. That's how faith comes. Now, in my own experience, too, I still know that. You hear, you know the Holy Spirit is telling you that this thing is wrong, this thing is wrong. But not until you come to a particular program and you hear the word of God faithfully preached. Maybe they make an altar call or not. And then you make a decision. And from that day, you receive what? Power to do what you could not do before. So that's why it's said here that the faithful preaching of the word of God, explanation of his law, is what brings about a revival. Okay, I want to hear from Akuchi and Jason. Okay, let me hear from Akuchi first. Mr. Akuchi. Uh, mine is uh, majorly assumption before. I used to be very um, assumptive. <laughs> 
in the sense that when I look at somebody, I can, with the moves or how the person is behaving, I can say for sure this is just what the cause is or this is what this person wants to do. Even if I'm not sure that, but I am certain with my observation that this is the cause and this is what this person wants to do. So it was working for a time, but at other times too, I was wrong. But even when it was wrong, I was believing it's a gift until I thank God for how he taught me last year. Last year I was very sick. I was just dying. I don't even know what was killing me. Then I had people like me too that assume. Some people said it's either health reform that is killing her or she did the abortion. Now, it's neither of these two, but some people believe it. If I had died that last year, people would talk it's health reform or she did abortion. Then when I now sat back and, and think about it, I would not be like, if it's another person too, that's what I would do. And that's too bad. So it now taught me that at times when you see people, you need to be sure what their problem is. And even if you are sure, you need to help them. Don't just stay one place and assume. You are seeing a sick person, the person is complaining of the symptoms, and you are saying it's masturbation that is killing him. And because of your assumption, you cannot have sympathy for the person where it may not be the cause. So I thank God for teaching me through the experience. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank God for all these experiences. So the question we're answering is the new birth. Are you experiencing it or have you experienced it? And from what we are hearing, many of us can testify that we are experiencing it. Okay, let's hear from Brodjison. I have a lot of experiences. But let me speak on this one concerning sports. When I was baptized, afterwards I took the number of the pastor which, who preached because I felt very convicted at that time. There were some new things I learned. But one time I was now scrutinizing myself. I was trying to see whether there was anything that was holding me back. Because normally these preachers will come in front. You're not meant to watching sex-related videos like pornography. In our minds, pornography means going to the internet, go to YouTube, or go and surf on pornographic sites. That's all. But the one on the television is not pornography. So the one in the internet is pornography, but the one on the television is not pornography. So all these things were not really stated. But I was stretching myself. Then the spots on the spots. Some things I could restrict, as in there were some restrictions, but the football was no, there was no restriction in the football. So it's just like, since you have left some other pleasures, your pleasure will concentrate on that one that you like. But I felt a little conviction because I discovered that Wednesday, when I was going to play ball, my mother would tell us whether we should go for midweek or we should play ball. Or, um, we should go for midweek or we should stay at home. Then because of I want to play ball, I want to like, try to persuade her or put her in a state where let's stay at home. Then when I stay at home, I'll not go and play ball. Or on Friday, or even Saturday, let me not even cough, let me Saturday. Sunday, we normally play ball on Sunday. So when you're looking at the preacher like this, you're waiting for announcements, the sports tomorrow, on the Sabbath day. <laughs> even when I was in the fellowship, there was someone that actually brought to the fellowship through sports. I brought the fellowship through sports. There are even people I can carry to sports 
who had never played ball. As in, I can persuade False reviver. Yeah. <laughs> I can persuade them. Someone that has not played ball will say, well, come, we'll go play ball now. Anything, anything you go and play, we'll go play. But with time, I discovered that hmm, this thing is somehow taking the place of as in where Christ is meant to be. Because now that I know that some pleasures are meant to be restricting, that one has now concentrated on the sports, which I was not really... I had that conviction that this thing might not be wrong. I called the pastor, actually. The pastor did not actually give me a straight answer. He mentioned sports in the Bible, which actually I did not research on it. So I just took the pastor at his word and just left it there. But with, but with time, I discovered that hmm, this thing is... At the time, I started dropping it small, small. So anytime that the football and sports are coming between church activities, I'll drop the football. But it does not mean that my mind will not be there. So, but with time, God helped me. And there will be a particular time that you will be so surprised that God will give you the power to, if you're willing to serve God and love him, you might, you might, not, you might not want to leave it. You might not want to leave it. But when God gives you the evidences, I discover that this, I love God. And he gives you the evidences why you should love him more to surrender this thing or to leave it then you leave it. Because some people, they want to do it by their own power and leave it. Before they will go back again. But with time, when you keep on praying, sometimes even down itself is even difficult. But by God's grace, I pray that God will keep on helping us. Amen. Amen. God will help us. Okay. Thank God for the experiences that we have been having. I will move on now. Question 11. Discuss how one can obtain biblical holiness and sanctification. We'll look at page 469, paragraph 2 to page 470, the whole of 470. How can we obtain this biblical holiness? If you look at 469, paragraph 3, it says, This work, that is the work of sanctification, can be accomplished only through faith in Christ, by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Paul admonishes believers, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Christian will feel, that's Philippians 2 verse 12 and 13, the Christian will feel the promptings of sin, but he will maintain a constant what? Warfare against it. So even though you are obtaining, experiencing holiness and sanctification, does it mean you will not be tempted? Does it mean inside you that there will not be that drive to want to go into sin? It says you will feel the promptings of sin, but will maintain a what? Constant warfare against it. Here is where Christ's help is needed. Human weakness becomes united to divine strength, and faith exclaims, Thank be, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. So one thing I can say about obtaining biblical holiness is that you must have that help that comes from Christ. You must be daily receiving strength from him. Then another one here we see is, and uh, this place in 470 paragraph 1, it says, And Peter sets before us the steps by which Bible sanctification is to be attained. Okay, so we are looking at the question, that's question 11. Discuss how one can obtain biblical holiness and sanctification. Right, Bergotson. Page 
469, paragraph 2, the subtitle, Experiencing Holiness and Sanctification. How can we experience it? The text here gives us the Bible reference, John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy, thy word is what? Then it gives us, so the word of God is what helps in sanctification, number one. Number two there says, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? There's a line there. I don't know if you saw it there. It says, Jesus told his disciples, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So the conclu conclusion there says, by the word and the spirit of God are open to men the great principles of what? Righteousness embodied in his law. Since the law is holy, just, and good, by the time we are studying the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will be sanctified. Let me put it plainly. When you wake up in the morning and you want, you're studying your Bible, you are exposing yourself to the process of what? Sanctification. When you are exposed, the Holy Spirit will tell you the things that are not right with you. It's the Holy Spirit that will flash it through your mind and impress it on your mind and say, you are very arrogant. Or your speech is not always seasoned with what? Grace. That's a weakness. So then the Holy Spirit can also give you power. Because we are told in John 6:63 that the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are what? Life. So that's one way we can experience sanctification. Your morning devotion as you sit to study, be intentional. Say, Lord, show me something. Don't fulfill all righteousness of just studying the Bible. Open your mind and say, God, what is it that I am lacking? Teach me this morning. Maybe I don't, I don't rejoice. I'm not very cheerful. Tell me. So that's one thing I, I see in that passage. Okay, like I said earlier, if you go down to four... 69 paragraph uh, 3 there it tells us that this work that he has just described cannot be accomplished except through faith in christ and by the power of the indwelling spirit of god we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling that's what we are told now the key point there is the christian will feel the promptings of sin but he will maintain a constant warfare against it so sanctification doesn't mean that you're not going to feel tempted you will feel tempted, and here is where Christ's help is needed. Human weakness becomes united to divine strength. And we have seen Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 to 10, that says, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness broadly kindness, and to broadly kindness charity. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. Okay, now the next part we are going to is the self-abhorrence and humility in the sanctified life. Our question is discuss the humility and self-abhorrence consistently found in the sanctified life. I believe we've already read. So let us talk about this. What is this self-abhorrence and humility that is constantly experienced in the sanctified life? So what's that about? Okay, let me ask. When, how many of us read you read up to this point. Okay. Now, when you got to this place, what did you understand about humility and self-abhorrence or self-abasement that occurs in the sanctified life? What did you understand? Okay, let's hear from God bless. 
you know, from the verse, uh, the first paragraph, you know, talking about page 470, you know, paragraph 2, I think it's like what the Bible is talking about, you know, I solve. When you are full of self, you don't really see sin as it really is. But when by God's grace, you know, you begin to see God's holiness, the way it really is, in contrast to your own self, you know, if you will see that human beings, we are nothing without God, you know, so it will actually bring about humility and, of course, self-abhorrence because you are going to hit what self is bringing. So it's a view of the infinite God that begins to what make our eyesight, you know, to see clearly, and then we can love what God loves and then hate what self brings, which is the evil, the sin, and all that is very unlovely. Amen. Any other person? Okay, go on, do not. Um, the closer we come to Christ, the more sinful we appear in our own eyes. Um, and also the working of the Holy Spirit from within makes the presence of every sin painfully distinct. And so when at some point you used to be holy before, you have been working with Christ before, but then at this point you see yourself as if you have never known Christ before again. It's not painful. And God to say, you start to wonder, all those other years, what was I? Was I a Christian? I mean, what's, <laughs> that's what you're saying now. Yeah. You look back at your experience and you say, what have I been doing since then? Because the way I see myself now, I, I abhor myself based on what I am seeing. So if I'm abhorring myself like this, then what have I been doing? So you you see your lost condition at that point. In fact, it, it can lead one to depression. It's, it's just, it's not what we expect. We think that the more I come closer to Christ, the more clean I appear. It is true. But before you become clean, there is some dirt that must be removed. So until it is brought to the conscience, then one realizes, ah, I am still not there. Pride says, ah, you are okay now. Uh, what else do you need? Saying, can you not preach? Can you not sing? Have you not been going to church? I mean, are, are you not reading your Bible? No. But the, the standard, the holiness of God appears in a new light to the believer. And then you begin to cry, who shall deliver me from this burden of death? From this body of death? And it leads one to seek Christ, which is humility that I cannot save myself, save me. And the scripture has depicted that for us in the experience of Daniel. He says, my comeliness, that's beautiful, my comeliness is turned into me, in me, into corruption. Not the Daniel I know. Yes, no. But then he is the one saying it of himself. But it is because he has seen somebody that is above and holier. Isaiah had the same experience. You know, he said, I'm corrupt. I'm undone. My own, it don't finish today. And the Lord stretched out his hand and saved him. John, the revelator, had the same experience too. And so the closer we come to Christ, the more we realize we need more humility than we have ever had before. We realize that I am more dirty than I have known to be in the beginning. And then it humbles one. 
So the relationship with Christ continues to thicken and be drawing closer as one gives up that cherished thing or whatever it is. Okay, I want to ask a question now. Thank you very much. And I think what he has said and what we have said generally is really what happens. Your comeliness turns into you to corruption. The more you come closer to Christ, the more you realize your sin. They become more painfully distinct to you and you abhor yourself because of the things that you are seeing in your life. Now, how does that play out when you see sin in other people's life? This self-abhorrence and humility. If it's indeed in somebody, how will the person relate with someone else when they see sin in that person's life? Okay, you want to add, add to the question? Or oh, it's a completely different question? Something different. Can we deal with this one first? Let's deal with this one first. Yeah? Okay, my question. Yes, it's, I don't want to break it down more than that. <laughs> my question is, if you are experiencing this self-abhorrence and humility, how does it play out? How does that humility show and this self-abhorrence show? when you see sin in another person's life. Let's hear from Bless, And we'll hear from you guys. First of all, of course, all that we know about ourselves, you know, whether physical or whatever, now you know, truth, you know, comes from God. So, in the same line of seeing evil, we want to also be like Christ when we see evil in others. You know, we read that Christ, though he was pure, he was not, it doesn't show his repulsion of sin in the presence of those who are very sinful. You wouldn't even know from the looks on his face, but of course, inwardly, he is not in line with evil of any kind, but he doesn't appear like, I am more righteous than you, you know? So he only has sympathy, of course, to do everything in his power to want to bring the person up. So, since we are seeing evil in ourselves, we should not be kind of, uh, you know, have this attitude of, I, am, I have arrived, you know, I am seeing evil very clearly, so you, you are terrible. No, 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 no. We have to be like Christ too. Okay. You know, trying to exalt them, you know, let them see too that this thing is wrong and by their own choice, you know, want to also rise up. So, but we should not, if, if we have that natural uh, instinct to want to, uh, you know, appear, ah, yeah, this is so terrible, you are still not being like Christ too. Okay. Did you get that point? that if you see sin in another person's life and you still react like, this thing is so terrible, you are not experiencing that humility. You are not experiencing that self-abhorrence. Very strange thing to say. I think you, maybe you, you may throw more light on that. You know. can, you, can, you, can you help? Please just give him so that you explain better what you mean. <laughs> Let, let me say, may, may, let, for example, maybe you used to be, you know, let me not, the obvious ones, everybody knows that they are really terrible. You know, let's say pride, for example, like, you know, in your mind, you are kind of exalted and then you begin to see Christ for who he really is. You know how, I mean, God Almighty becoming man, you know, and yet he submitted to all of the insults we can heap on him. And never for one did he say, do you know who I am? So you begin to see yourself in that light, ah, if Christ can be like this, then myself, who am I? So you begin to see how terrible pride really is. And you see somebody who is now proud, you tell him to express, you, you, you are too proud. You are too proud, you know? You are, being, you are going beyond what Christ would do. Christ will not say, so he will only make you see the pride. Of course, in loving ways. And you yourself, you will not choose to want to live pride because it is evil. Mm-hmm. It is not right. Okay. So you're coming out to say that this is wrong, you know, this is terrible, you know, and then appear as if you are the judge, you are being on Christ-like. You are not being humble about it, right? 
Well, there's more that can be said about it. Oh, do you want to continue from? Okay, let's hear from. You know, I, her hand has been up before those ones. Let's hear from her. With Paul, who was Saul, when he understood how lost he was, even being zealous but in the wrong path, and how Jesus saved him in spite of his filthiness. Just like, for instance, a, a king coming to serve a common man, you a king kneeling down to serve the common man food, and the common man just sees this humility like, ah, or the story of the king that helped that um, upset the other person's beer, he went out to ask for his own. That's when we don't have that humility to know that the Lord condescended to our level. So we should be with that same sympathy to other people. So because Paul understood where he was coming from, I understood what was given to him on the platter of gold. He was more sympathetic with the Gentiles to win those who are also lost back into the fold. So it is with us too. If we are really drawing it to the Lord, we will not, in fact, when we stand in relation to other person we call a sinner, we will see that we are filthy ourselves. So why should we be calling, your, like the common saying, pot, to, pot calling kettle black? Yeah. All right. So, so, so far, that's what we are seeing, that if you are experiencing this humility, I think what both of us have said is, is that, one, you will not react to somebody else's sin as though you say this is a terrible thing. I think you quoted that Christ does not show show that kind of attitude towards people's sin. And you realize that you also are like in the same thing. So why are you pointing fingers? Unless you've not seen it. Or you think, oh, you are exempt from this particular one. That's the reason why you may want to point fingers. Okay, let's hear from Brogodson. It's amazing how Christ does that when he himself has not sinned. You know, for me, how I can understand this is from my own experience. Let's say you are somebody who you don't keep you don't keep to time. But your for another person it's so easy. What's there? It's just every time you're just too lazy, you don't keep to time. You may not know what the person is going through. It's not that the person is not putting effort to. Because we are told that we have different build ups. We have inherited different characters. Some of us this is one thing I think that has helped me. We all have different backgrounds. In your house, you may have been trained to wake up on time, and the training has really helped you. There's somebody else who does not even know there's something called time to wake up, or time to, that you have to wash your plate. You'll be looking at the person and be wondering, ah, why can't you just get things right for you? You're just being so... So now, but judge it from your own experience. When you may have fallen in one other area, you can now understand from that your own area I don't know, you've just been conscious of your own, know your own experience. What have you struggled with in this life? Is there anything you struggle with in this life? Why are you struggling? Do you know that some people are not struggling with that thing at all? That thing you're struggling with, there are some people that don't have a problem with it at all. And you know in your own problem too, you're wishing, I wish somebody can really help me understand how to do this thing. How You're wishing that there's a way out. You're feeling sympathy for yourself. Are, so when you see another person in another problem, he may be experiencing that same feeling you have, but in another different way. So with your own experience, you can say, brother, we are, I understand in a little sense what you're going through. Or it can be difficult. We are in all these things. But God can help you. But don't judge the matter with your own uh, righteousness. C- come on, how can't you just fast for one? Some people cannot fast for 30 minutes one day. 
But you, you can be able to fast for three days on a stretch. So you know, they have, we have different builds. So that should help us to be sympathetic when we know that we have different backgrounds that can help us. All right. Thank you very much. I think I'll just pick up that word. That is actually what it is. The way you relate with other people, if you're experiencing this self-abhorrence and uh, uh, lowliness, humility, the one word I will use is sympathy. I can also say compassion. When you see, yes, patience also with people, and you will not react in a shock towards other people's sins. Or like he said, act as if, why are you doing this terrible thing? You understand? Christ, who is holier than you, did not do that. He sat before an adulterer, Simon, who in his heart was judging him, saying, if this man knew that this woman was an adulterer, eh, he would not allow her to wash his feet. He could have exposed this man that he also is an adulterer, but he mentioned not one word about it. Nowadays, did he call Judas a thief. You get, this is the highest level of holiness. And we have not even come just a glimmer close to it. And just the small holiness you have, you're already pointing fingers. Hmm? And you're already feeling, like the Bible says, holier than thou. And that holier than thou is shown in abhorrence of sin in another person's life. You think that that outward show that you hate sin is holiness itself. Because you have become holy in one area or the other. You now feel like you want to show that you, are, you hate sin. Hmm? And because you want to show you hate sin, the moment you see somebody committing sin, you want to point it out in the person's life and let the person know that you saw him doing this sin and you try to correct the person and in a way to show that I, I, I hate sin. That's the reason why I'm doing this. But the patience, that, like Godson said, how Christ can be holy without sin and still react in that way is indeed marvelous. It's an example to us that somebody who is the epitome of holiness, who has never committed that sin before, because many of us will shut up the moment we commit the sin. You will cry down the adulterer. The moment your own adultery becomes public, will you talk again? But Jesus doesn't have any public sin. But yet, does he do that? No. We allow our sin to shut us up when it goes public. But Christ doesn't have any public sin. But yet, he just manifests sympathy and compassion towards the sinner. And that's how that lowliness, that humility, that self-abhorrence, if you have seen your own sin, it will humble you. You don't have to see the exact same sin, which is why many of us make mistakes. We feel like, okay, as far as I've not committed adultery, I will treat the adulterer like this. You know your own. My own is different. It's a small thing. While your own is a big thing. Uh, if it is the person that is doing my own, I will not talk. But when it's different from my own, then I will talk because that's where I'm a master. I'm strong in that area. Then we are not experiencing that sanctification as we should. Hmm? Pride. Then we, it means we are not experiencing the sanctification as we should. I'm not saying we are not experiencing it, but we have to grow. We have to grow higher than that.